Uh, good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Okay. Uh, thank you for the invite uh, to come along. And uh, as Steve said, as he read my notes, uh, we're hopefully going to journey through some of the Old Testament wisdom. Uh, we're going to dip our proverbial toe into the enigmatic and murky word of Ecclesiastes, uh, treading the path of mysterious Koheleth, who's the writer, um, to liberate him from his vanity of vanities. And really, rarely does a biblical book evoke such admiration from a Nobel laureate, um, a new new paper columnist, a prize-winning poet, and a popular songwriter. Even Bono himself um, was reported to use it as a defense when he was wearing his devil's costume on stage. He told his accuser that, you know, it's just ironic. It's a bit like Ecclesiastes. So one of the reverberating proverbs or sayings that shaped my thought was repeated and repeated and repeated to us in college. And that was the text out of context becomes a pretext for interpreting the text whatever way you want. In other words, be careful how you read. However, being a fully signed up member of postmodernity, um, you are going to have to do a bit of work yourselves. I'm not going to be prescriptive here. I'm going to try and give you a few maybe tools to be able to work your way through Ecclesiastes for yourselves because I feel that's fairly important. So how can this ancient book packed with quirky and sometimes seemingly contradictory wisdom have anything to say in our 21st century? Um, and yeah, hopefully it will enable you to put it into your own context. So we'll start off tonight with Old Testament wisdom. So what is wisdom? You know, is it simply the accumulation of knowledge? You know, that understanding would make the average school leaver wise with their 10 GCSEs and four A levels, or somehow the older folk amongst us, that won't really ring true. On the other hand, there's a stereotypical village elder, you know, who's not in the habit of accumulating vast amounts of knowledge. He is still classed as being wise. So what is wisdom? You know, there is continuity between wisdom and knowledge, without a doubt. However, there is discontinuity between them. For the purposes of this evening, uh, this, this continuity will be understanding the place of the tomato in our world. So this is vitally important for understanding Ecclesiastes as how the tomato fits. Is it a fruit or is it a vegetable? So according to leading scientists, the tomato is definitely a fruit. So tree fruits, fruits develop from the ovary in the base of the flower and contain seeds of the plant. Therefore, tomato belongs with apples, blueberries, raspberries, oranges and certain types of nuts. So that's knowledge. Wisdom, on the other hand, is understanding that a tomato definitely does not belong in the confines of a fruit salad. Probably one of the first questions we should ask ourselves is why do most scholars find the wisdom literature, specifically Ecclesiastes, so enigmatic and hard to follow? The word enigmatic, I think every single scholar uses it that I've read for Ecclesiastes. So why do they find it so? Postmodern thinkers talk about lenses, seeing, seeing everything through different or divergent lenses. They say that uh, these lenses help us interpret the world surrounding us. The le- our lenses are colored by our culture, by our language, by our gender, by our generational temperament, our individual idiosyncrasies, just to name a few. You know, as most of you know, our Western lens is heavily colored by Aristotle and Plato and the later period of the Enlightenment. This process of thought and scientific research 
have enhanced our knowledge of the surrounding world exponentially beyond our forefathers' wildest dreams. However, some scholars, specifically Bartholomew No Dowd, who, if you want to buy a book about Ecclesiastes by Bartholomew No Dowd, they're very, very good, say that our eagerness to acquire knowledge, in our eagerness to acquire knowledge, um, we may have forgotten how to do wisdom. One of the authors I read while preparing for this book also looks at the role of wisdom amongst the less developed countries um, and places wisdom squarely within the confines of creation, specifically the capacity to wonder at the power and order of creation. They go on to say that the increasing insulating power of our large, comfortable, sheltered, gas-heated homes, electricity, clock radios, luxury automobiles, microwaves, computers, cell phones has distanced us from the creation. Therefore, they conclude that large swathes of our generation of Christianity have never thought to embrace or develop a theology of wisdom. There's the eclipse of creation and the marginalization of the biblical wisdom literature have left us bereft of sheer wonder at God's ways in this world. So traditional wisdom seems relatively unsophisticated for us here in the West and waste of much of our precious time. However, whenever scholars do decide to waste some of their time and wisdom, it comes as no surprise um, to most of you that they argue over it, um, what should be called wisdom. More precisely, um, the extent at which wisdom starts and stops. There is a consensus that the books like Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and some of the Psalms can be classed as biblical wisdom literature. However, some would argue that wisdom is throughout the whole Old Testament. So I would tend to agree with these latter scholars as my personal understanding is that wisdom literature is found throughout the whole of the ancient Near East, and it seems to be a universal concept. This concept concerns itself with life in all of its splendor and all of its ordinariness. Therefore, we should expect it to crop up in our historical, our poetic, the legal books and the prophetic books of the Bible. We also tend to think that the rule of the Bible, sorry, we tend to think that the Bible is written in a vacuous bubble, devoid of any outside influence. However, our, as our knowledge of the ancient race grows with archaeological and ancient manuscript finds, we discover that they and the biblical text have much in common. For me, this is, this is totally amazing. It does not take away from the inspiration of God at all in giving or preserving his Bible. It only adds to it as we can see how God has blessed the whole of humanity with gifts such as thought, understanding, and wisdom. God has given, given inspira- God's given inspiration enables the biblical writers to discern what God is trying to teach through differing contexts and cultures. Chris Wright um, describes this very, very nicely um, by using the analogy of disinfectant. God has given people the, the ability to be wise, but human nature being what it is has twisted it to justify the wickedness of his own heart through oppression, inhumanity, neglect, and greed. However, Israel takes the best of what is already existing, filters it through the disinfectant of Yahweh, his truths, allowing them to become their guides for life. Is this a lesson for Christianity in the West? Instead of focusing our efforts to show the rest of the world how different and wrong it is compared to us, maybe we should be building bridges focusing on commonalities, enabling us to be effective in showing them Christ instead of our religion. Okay, back to wisdom. 
My Hebrew reading is not quite fluent, but the little I know I'd like to share with you. The Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, so everybody say chokmah. If you're of Scottish descent, you should have no problem saying this. It's the real So try it again, chokmah. Chokmah is most at home in the language of poetry, especially in the realm of metaphor. Um, Bartholomew, um, he writes that wisdom is not primarily interested in relating a list of theological truths, an account of history, or a picture of the future. Wisdom is about the ways of things, how they are, mean to, how they mean, are meant to exist and work, and so we find it popping up all over the Bible. If we were to do a, a word study in Chokmah, it would include some of, the, and all of the, some of its Hebrew derivatives who discover that they convey a wide scope of concepts and ideas that form the basis for order, for justice, for discretion, for both moral and skillful types of behavior. Another one of the large scholars, uh, Van Leeuwen, observes that Hebrew wisdom goes one step further than general wisdom found in the ancient Near East. You know, he notes that the Hebrew concept of wisdom is totalizing. It encompasses everyday activity, such as farming, sowing, building, reasoning, lawmaking. It is about how all such activities find their meaning in the whole of God's created order. You know, mending a garment, cooking a meal, and plowing a field are wise when they are in harmony with God's order of the world. So I find myself, or I find myself wondering, you know, what does this really mean? How can we plow a field or provide a meal in harmony with God's order? You know, biblical wisdom directs its readership to look back to the book of Deuteronomy and rediscover how God provided for Israel. It, enabled, it was to enable the people to fully embrace how God's laws and the capacity to bring them to shalom, not only with God, but with each other, and hopefully, eventually, all those they came in contact with. Therefore, wisdom is there to give a pattern to life, giving the mundane meaning, enabling its hearers to contemplate their rule and existing in a world full of hardship and fallenness. See, the wisdom literature in general has a two-step movement. Firstly, it looks around at the outside world, seeing its natural patterns and order to the world. Things like the limits of the waters, the circuits of the sun, the works of the creatures, and the changing of the seasons. It observes rhythm in what's going all around it. When wisdom begins to move inwards, it begins to tune our daily lives, tune the lives of the hearers into a rhythm or a groove that's being played all around us. See, the uniqueness of the biblical wisdom as opposed to other ancient Near Eastern wisdoms was, for example, or for example, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, Akkadian, or Assyrian, is that they consistently proclaim God. God is always the call of the biblical text. So it is to this Yahweh's tune that the Hebrew wisdom declares that the orchestra of the natural world is playing. Therefore, to appreciate it, better still to participate in the vast array of music, Wisdom becomes their scale, their choromatic tuner, the, the notes in the page, and like each section of the orchestra is directed by a conductor, their tune is specific for the time and place in their world. The wisdom stuff pervades all of the Old Testament, and surprisingly to some extent the New Testament, yet it's almost forgotten by us in the West. Another major consideration for reading Ecclesiastes is that the majority of it was written as poetry. 
And as most of us know, poetry is nuanced by both language that is composed in and those that is composed for. Therefore, it makes some of the imagery we find in wisdom both difficult to fathom and possibly contradictory. Of course, the polar opposite is also true. It can have the capacity to make an image in the mind or eliminate an abstract concept in a way that prose would take many, many more words to explain. Poetry offers those who partake the ability to experiment with language and engage with experiences and perceptions of life. Poetry inspires our imagination and it has the ability to connect us with creativity and mirth and rhythmical order of the creator himself. One scholar goes as far to say, with poetry we imitate God in his own creative rhythms. Just look at Psalm 104. Goheleth, the writer, uses poetry to expand and contract ideas. He plays with poetry to create couplets and to break sections, to make contradictions and to clarify. Some might even say to bring heresy or to explain orthodoxy. And when I said earlier that wisdom is neglected, I think that it's just hidden in the recesses of our society. However, sometimes it makes an appearance and surprises us. Let me read something out that some of you may be familiar with. Could you stick that on? This is a book by um, Julia Donaldson that my kids love. It's called A Squash and a Squeeze. Let's see if I can do this. A little old lady lived by herself with the table and chairs and jug on the shelf. A wise old man heard her grumble and grouse. There's not enough room in my house. Wise old man, would you help me please? My house is a squash and a squeeze. Take in your hen, said the wise old man. Take in my hen, what a curious plan. Well, the hen laid an egg on the fireside rug and flapped around the room, knocking over the jug. The little old lady cried, what shall I do? It's pokey for one and it's tiny for two. My nose is a tickle, there's no room to sneeze. My house is a squash and a squeeze. And she said, wise old man, would you help me please? My house is a squash and a squeeze. Take in your goat, said the wise old man. Take in my goat, what a curious plan. Well, the goat chewed the, cur- chewed the curtains and trod on the egg and sat down nibble on a table leg. The little old lady cried, glory be, it was tiny for two and it's titchy for three. The hen pecks the goat and the goat's got fleas. My house is a squash and a squeeze. And she said, wise old man, would you help me please? My house is a squash and a squeeze. Take in your pig, said the wise old man. Take in my pig. What a curious plan. So she took in her pig, who kept chasing the hen and reading the larder again and again. The little old lady cried, Stop, I implore. It's titchy for three and it's teeny for four. Even the pig in the larder agrees. My house is a squash and a squeeze. And she said, Wise old man, would you help me please? My house is a squash and a squeeze. Take in your cow, said the wise old man. Take in my cow, what a curious plan. Well, the cow took one look and charged straight at the pig and jumped on the table and tapped out a jig. The little old lady cried, heaven's alive, it's teeny for four and it's weeny for five. I'm tearing my hair out, I'm down on my knees, my house is a squash and a squeeze. And she said, wise old man, would you help me please, my house is a squash and a squeeze. Take them all out, said the wise old man, but then I'll be back to where I first began. She opened the window and 
Out flew the hen. That's better, at last I can sneeze again. She shooed out the goat and shoved out the pig. My house is beginning to feel pretty big. She huffed and she puffed and she pushed at the cow. Just look at my house, it's enormous now. Thank you, old man, for the work you have done. It was weenie for five, it's gigantic for one. There's no need to grumble, there's no need to grouse. There's plenty of room in my house. And now she's full of frolics and filly dees. It isn't a squash and it isn't a squeeze. Yes, she's full of frolics and filly dees. It isn't a squash and it isn't a squeeze. Do you know, that's a fabuli- fabulously written children's poem by Gillian Donaldson. It's fun and it's a little quirky. And its character, the wise old man, is pictorially portrayed as an old Jewish rabbi. Uh, but it holds some of the keys, I feel, to the ancient Asian literature. How, you may ask? Yeah. It's expressed as poetry to start off with, enabling it to emulate an exaggerated real-life mundaneness. It takes everyday occurrences, some, someone with discontentment with their standard of living, and applies wisdom. However, notice what the wisdom does here. He, which is the wise old man, shows her, the little old lady, all that she has been blessed with. First, he causes her to notice that she has a house of which she's unhappy with. Then he turns, her, turns to her livelihood, how she's able to sustain herself. She has more than the essential needs for life. In some eyes, she has an overabundance of wealth in her natural surroundings. By squeezing them into her, her house, not only is he forcing her to acknowledge her wealth from her livelihood, but also he is forcing her to acknowledge her wealth through the reading of her larder, the breaking of her crockery, and the wealth of her possessions that she's held in the house. Wisdom upsets the balance of her, her harmonious ecosystem, bringing the animals out of their proper places, which is ordered creation, together in a place that causes disharmony and chaos, which in turn causes misery and hardship. When eventually the wise old man tells her to release the animals into their proper places, you begin to see the little old lady's appreciation for the ordered creation. Her newly considered wealth and contentment with life that she has been given. She taking the mundane and showing her how extraordinary it actually really is. This is wisdom. While Julia Donaldson may not have ever had ancient narration literature in her mind when she's writing the story, you know, there are there are quite a few parallels that we could we could learn from this when we're thinking about Ecclesiastes. That was the introduction. Is that okay? <laughs> right. On the Ecclesiastes itself. So when we think about Ecclesiastes, what's our first response? Some people shout out, what's your first response when you hear about Ecclesiastes? Pointless. (laughs) Okay, pointless. What else? Thanks to the van, the man. What else? What springs to mind? That's it? That's about right. No, 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 that's about right. Yeah, well, um, so it's, yeah, we think of it as wisdom. Uh, we think of it as written by Solomon. We think of it vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. We think of the contradictions in it, and we also think that there's a time for everything. Also, the brevity of life, and at the end, at the end of the day, everybody dies. So, that's maybe why most people avoid Ecclesiastes. There's also a pattern throughout Ecclesiastes which goes something like this. 
Vapor, 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 meaningless, chasing after the wind. Eat, drink, and be merry. Vapor, 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 meaningless, chase after the wind. You're going to die. Drink, eat, and be merry. Vapor, 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 everything is meaningless, chasing after the wind. Better be a stillborn child than to see the evil in the world. However, eat, drink, and be merry, and it goes on. Anybody looking at this pattern you know, should not be chastised for if they thought the writer needed a little um, medical attention or even some strong medication. But as we move beyond the surface pattern of the text, we begin to see that the writer is trying, what the writer is really trying to communicate. If I asked you who wrote Ecclesiastes, most of you would probably say Solomon, which, if you pick that from the, up from the text, is a good thing. You know, this seems to be what the writer has intended you to think. Writing under the guise of, or writing as someone from the school of a great scholar or a great teacher, was common practice in the ancient Near East, and seen by their contemporaries as a compliment or as a furthering of the teacher's scholastic thought. It was also used as a literary device to draw the reader in, to furnishing the reader with certain presuppositions. This is what I, was, this is what I think is happening with Ecclesiastes. The writer alludes to Solomon to obtain the attention of his audience, and drawing their attention to the, and in drawing their attention, um, drawing their attention of the hearers. Um, of what may be received as Israel's golden age, of their golden age in history. While they're, while, yeah, he's trying to draw them in by saying, "Look, remember back to Solomon. Remember Solomon is Solomon's time was the best time of Israel's history, uh, where the granting of wisdom by God to Solomon enabled him to achieve peace and prosperity." This would be a post-exilic longing for the remnant of Israel. However, remember there are, there are two sides to Solomon. The majority of our element, uh, the majority of our evidence of Solomon comes from First Kings one to eleven, and here we read that Solomon was granted wisdom by God and achieved great things for Israel. He achieved the great center of worship, the temple, on the mount. It was complete. He extended Israel's borders. And he seemed to reign at peace with the surrounding nations. In some ways, as I said, it was the glory days for Israel. All of which is true. However, we usually interpret First Kings through what I like to call our Sunday school lenses. Um, seeing him almost as a Richard the Lionheart type figure. You know, the other side of Solomon is a different story. You know, his consolidation of David's throne was brutal to say the least. He married Pharaoh's daughter which was against the God's stipulations found in Deuteronomy. He enslaved his own people for the building of both his temple and his palace. And he was fixated with women and engrossed in idol, idol worship. So maybe there's more to the illusion of Solomon's ethereal position of Ecclesiastes than we first expected. So let's, let's dig a little deeper. Many of the ancient Near Eastern stories and myths concern themselves with granting godlike status and eternal life. Underlying theme to most of these narratives or poems is that wisdom is the channel to achieve this. The writer of Ecclesiastes seems to be employing a polemic here in using the Solomon character to convey wisdom. He is showing that the he's showing the hearers that wisdom, that all the wisdom in the world, even if it's given by God Himself, 
is not enough to cheat death or immortality or gain immortality. Also remember, this is supposed to be an old Solomon reaching the end of his life, passing on wisdom to a younger person. That's not what wisdom's for. Wisdom is for navigating life, and ultimately the hearer would know that Solomon did eventually die. There's also the possibility that the writer is using the Solomon character to personify the first three chapters of Genesis. In God giving Solomon the gift of wisdom, echoes of Genesis can be heard. And as much as God was walking and talking with humanity in the garden, and as these stories progress, there is the drifting away from God. He has alluded to Solomon to show the natural progression of human nature is to fall away from God. Having all the wisdom of Solomon without the focus of God, we are all doomed to fail. The use of Solomon as a character is both a warning and encouragement to the hearers. Warning them not to follow Solomon's example. For even the most wise can do, the, can do wrong in the sight of the Lord. However, encourage them to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Live each day to the full and as it comes to them because it is one more day that they have been granted by their living God. So as we move on from Solomon, I want to have a wee look at the most vexing and memorable phrase throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. The word translated vanity, translated meaningless, futility, brevity of life, or vapor. Here comes another Hebrew word, hebel, or hevel, depending if you're pointing it or not. It's used 39 times throughout Ecclesiastes. Uh, I think the writer is really trying to get a point across here by using that one word so many times. So it's also it's difficult to translate because it's actually given as a proper name to a biblical character. And it is the form, it's in this form of the character that the scholars try to translate. They try to convey, convey the concepts and ideas. Do we find the character in Genesis 4, 2 to 10? It's the name of Cain's ill-fated brother, Abel. Name was of vital importance to anyone from the ancient Near East. Um, They could convey an essential characteristic of your persona. It could could denote a trait of your family status, or your family status, um, within the context of your village. This survived up until about a few hundred years ago here. For example, if you're a smith, your lineage is probably a blacksmith. If you're a Northern Irish Graham, you're probably related to the murderers and the sheep stealers from Scotland called the Mahargs, which is Graham backwards. Uh, my own name, Fullerton, um, is an amalgamation of two Middle English sort of French words. Fowler, the first part, which is someone working for birds, and Tun, which is a barrel or a casket. Um, so my family is synonymous with gathering birds. Uh, see, I didn't really know what that is. Uh, but anyway, back to Abel. Um, Abel's name is the root of the whole of Kohelis concepts. Abel is synonymous with brevity of life or transience. It conveys the image of breath, more precisely the waste product of our breath. It's like vapor or something as light as smoke. So this is what most scholars try to equate to Hebel. So let's think about breath for a moment. Right, everybody take a deep breath. And out again. And in. And out. Keep breathing in. Don't breathe out, just in. 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 
in. Oh, you can, you can breathe out again. So your natural urge is to breathe out. Do you know what would happen if you kept breathing in? You'd probably burst. Do you know, therefore, we need to exhale. For sure, it is waste. It's a byproduct of our biological workings, but it is essential to life. Therefore, uh, like our breath out, maybe there's an underlying picture that is obscured in the, obscured in the telling of the, of the Abel's narrative. There is the possibility that there is more, there's a more positive side to Hebel, the story, the Abel story. While his existence did seem short, even if we don't know his age, we just know his life was cut short. His sacrifice was acceptable before the Lord. There is a sense that the sacrifice was acceptable, had, a, had an abrasive effect on self-glorification and the gaining of things here on earth. Because I'm guessing that to be looked favorably on by the Lord was a good thing for people. Now, why else would Cain have killed him? Therefore, in relation to whatever Abel's sacrifice was, anything that we can gain in this world is unsatisfyingly empty and relatively worthless. I wonder if the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to get his heirs or his readership to ponder their own hearts in search of that acceptable sacrifice. Certainly in the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, the writer takes us on a journey that is parallel with the opening chapters of Genesis, making us look at the created order of the world and ask his listeners, what does man gain from, from all this? Maybe one of the keys tied with Genesis 4 in Cain trying to get something from God and thinking that sacrifice would be the means to an end, whereas Abel simply sacrificed the Lord as a mark of respect. The Hebel of Koheleth is more than meaninglessness. It's asking us to consider what, how, and why we value, the, what value all the things under the sun in relation to being regard, regarded by the Lord. So as we read through Ecclesiastes, we find life with lots of its quirks and foibles on show. It's messy, sometimes contradictory, and often self-focused. The concept of helleth interjected throughout the book is maybe meant to break this self-centeredness down and move us into a, into a posture that God finds acceptable. And in doing so, we should paradoxically see meaning and value in the people and the world that it surrounds us. So what is the, what is the narrative of Ecclesiastes? Like, like the surrounding nations of the ancient Near East, Israel saw that there was a pattern, an order to this world. They, like we do, affirm that this is Yahweh's, this is God's wisdom. However, our seemingly insignificant life in the grand scheme of things cannot find satisfaction in chasing after the wind, or like Bono wrote, and Steve helpfully clarified the futility of trying to catch every breaking wave. However, there, there, there can be satisfaction. God has given us wisdom to discern how he's ordered it. We should give up our vain desires to control the outcomes of our own plans, bring our offerings to God, along with the fat of portions, without any expectations. We must remember that this was, a, this was a free offering. It was before the legalities of the Jewish law. 
So coupled with Hebel is the phrase, nothing better than to eat, to drink, and to be merry. This sounds very humanistic and self-centered and not really in tune with what I've just really said. What if we turned this into a missional statement? For example, there's nothing better for humanity to eat, drink, and to be merry. To be quite apt for this season that we're about about to embark on. Our instinctive reading of the text is to apply it to ourselves. Our nature immediately wants to grab this statement for ourselves, for our own consumption. But the writer doesn't say you, or doesn't say the wealthy. He denotes a sense of all humanity. You know, this ties into my earlier point of Cain's grabbing for self-glorification and self-desire. And also Cahela's own observations of tyranny and oppression. The phrase, nothing better for humanity, gives us, the wealthy, the obligation of helping all of humanity enjoy what is a fundamental, is fundamentally a basic enjoyment of life. The Ecclesiastes has been a large part of my life for the last few years in different contexts. You know, Rob Bell once summed up Ecclesiastes by saying, you can find joy and satisfaction when you have faced the possibility of futility. It is whenever you have acknowledged the vapour that true enjoyment comes a reality. When you face the possibility that your actions may not bring about the results you wanted, when you surrender your desired outcome, and when we acknowledge our partisanness, we are, we are then free to enjoy, and we may be able to help someone else in the process. This letting go of your plans, joy for us is often wrapped up in the outcomes of the plans that we actually make. The writer of Ecclesiastes is reminding us that, reminding us of our powerlessness to control our own outcomes. Life is truly random in the midst of God's order. This is something that's been quite raw for my family. Mission has been a large part of my wife's life. Actually, it's her, her whole life has been involved in mission. For me, it was a little different. Um, I began to grow into it slowly. Um, for example, when we got married, we had one year of thinking and praying about what we were going to do for God. And when we saw it, we decided to head off to Bible college. We did five years of Bible college. Okay, In those five years, it took me two years um, to figure out where I could fit into mission or feel comfortable in mission. It took another further year to sort of achieve the next step of my goal. Um, it took three international placements um, until we found out that we actually fell in love with the people of Malaysia. And finally, two more years of study and practicing my chosen art of teaching missional biblical studies um, that we came to the conclusion this is what we were meant to be doing. We meant to be going to mission to teach in a Bible college. So after leaving the college and filling in one million forms, which is what OMF really stands for, um, there came the, exci- the excitement of being formally invited to join a team in Malaysia to teach in a Bible college. You know, our plans were on track. You know, this is where our, our identity began to lie. Our plan was to be in Northern Ireland for about a year to 18 months, raise support, and then go and start ministry. However, life happens. As many of you know, we have four wonderful and very noisy children. Um, Lois, our eldest twin, was diagnosed with cerebral palsy um, about a year after she was born. Uh, Of course, we didn't think much of it. 
you know, we're Northern Irish, we're good hardy stock. You know, we can, we can face anything. Just, just go ahead, carry on with the plan. However, it began to unravel. So our, our organisation at OMF, um, wouldn't, they couldn't give us medical clearance. Uh, therefore, we could not proceed to the final stage of raising support. Consequently, we couldn't go to Malaysia. So how do you deal with such a blow? So it's almost seven years of hard planning and being faithful to going into all the world to preach the gospel, our call. Do you know, it's really only recently I began to discover that the right of Ecclesiastes, coupled with Rob Bell's state, what Rob Bell's statement is getting at, our desires, our self-absorption, our plans are like Hebel, like Abel's life. They are not meaningless because there's lots of self-discovery that came with planning. They are more like mist. They're breath, they're vapor, they're tangible, yet at the same time they're not. The healing, of, the healing of Ecclesiastes is found in the joy of eating and drinking and being satisfied with life. This comes in the form of being able to let go of our plans. Now, for us, facing the futility of pressing forward with Malaysia at this moment in time has enabled us to be part of a different side of OMF, a different side of the community. We're able to be involved with helping those to enthuse other people to go into mission in the future. It's also helped us find somewhere where we can begin to rejuvenate our own spirits and seek to understand our place here in Belfast. So we are all on some sort of faith journey. We're all part of God's greater mission. And our mission is to have the wisdom of God to discern what part we play in God's orchestra of life. So what is Ecclesiastes teaching us? What is it saying? With this, I'll finish. May we get stuck into life and live it in this moment because we can never understand eternity. Rather than using wisdom foolishly as Solomon did, may we embrace it and contemplate it, rather like the writer of Ecclesiastes, to see, even to feel the misery and oppression of, that has encompassed us encompass the whole earth, however, enjoying what we have been blessed with by using our blessings, God's wisdom, as our guide to bring justice, advocacy, and a a fundamental enjoyment to true life. After all, if we are to be followers of the way, Christians, is that not what the gospel teaches us Jesus did?